The Nonprofit Hour, a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do-gooders, with interviews, profiles, and documentaries. You're listening to The Nonprofit Hour on xray.fm, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. I'm Henry Leisha. Today, we bring you conversations with two organizations that help underserved youth in the Portland area. Joy Church, the executive director of Portland Kitchen, will tell us about how her nonprofit uses food as a tool to build life skills with youth in a fun and creative setting. We will also speak with Heather Jeffress and Timothy Travis from Kinship House, a group that provides outpatient mental health services to foster and adopted children, as well as their families. For more, we turn to our host, Phil Bussey. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Hour. I am joined in the studio today by Joy Church, and she is the executive director for the Portland Kitchen. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. So the Portland Kitchen... Tell me what this is. It's it's sort of like home ec? Yes, that is a kind of good way of, of putting it. Since um, home ec isn't in the schools anymore, I guess you can consider us a replacement. Um, we are a culinary program for at-risk kids um, in the Portland area. Yeah, and talk to me about that a little bit. So the kids you're working with, they're a specific demographic, they're pulling from a specific location, or how does that work? Right. So our core program exists for kids that are eight, 14 to 18 years old. And then we have a new program for students 18 to 24, and that just launched as a pilot three weeks ago. So the core program is, is in its fourth year now, and that is after school and during the summer. And it is for disadvantaged youth that otherwise wouldn't have access to after school programming or summer programs. So I imagine that we're, we're talking a lot about, we're talking about more than just cooking skills. We're talking about some life skills here, correct? That's sort of... That's absolutely true. Folded in, to use a little bit of a cooking term. Yes. Uh, yes, it is folded into the program. So, you know, cooking is a way to, yes, teach those kitchen skills and health and nutrition. But you've got to come together as a team to make the dish. So kids really learn time management, organization, dedication, and major teamwork. So we've had students talk to us about, um, you know, they one student was so eloquent in talking about at school, you know, he could maybe not do his part and still the work would get done in a team effort. But in the kitchen, if you don't do your part, it's noticed and the dish will fall apart. So you're really responsible for showing up and being there for your team. So the kitchen is a great way to tuck in other skills too. Reading, writing, a lot of math and science go into cooking as well. So it's a great chance for us to give kids a lot of a lot of experiences that they otherwise may not get. I, it sounds a little bit like a Trojan horse, like you're sort of tricking the students <laughs> into math and teamwork. Well, I guess it does just happen that way. We certainly are open about the things that students can get out of the program. But, you know, our mission is to help underserved youth. And we do that through food and cooking. But we want to give them a full range of opportunities. So another piece, we we provide volunteer opportunities for students. And actually to graduate, they have to do at least three volunteer activities. So we want to begin that chance for kids to 
see what else is out there in the world and how they can help other people in their community around food. So soup kitchens, spaghetti feeds, certainly those kinds of things. I'm going into gardens and weeding, helping to plant. But it also gives us a chance to take students to the theater or to take people, students into, the, into backyards, um, into areas that maybe they've never seen. So they get a chance to look at their options in the world. Um, we had last year, we did this great rooftop grill off a burger battle downtown on the top of the Indigo building. And Northwest Priority Credit Union put this amazing event on for us. And I drove the students. We went up the stairs to the Indigo building. Many of the students didn't even realize that they were still in Portland because they'd never been downtown before. Um, you know, it's only six miles away from where they live. Um, but they'd never been downtown and they'd never been on a rooftop. And one of the students spoke, spoke for the kids and he said, this must be what heaven looks like. You know, just an incredible experience to be able to share what it can, what life can be like. And then to talk about the building itself, that people live there. You know, people have jobs, they pay rent, and they live in this amazing building downtown. And this is possible for these students. You know, they have the opportunity to use this skill to change their lives. I've had some good burgers in the past, but I, I don't know that I've ever had quite that full experience of, of feeling like I was, I'd, I'd visited heaven. That's right. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. So you're talking about um, a little bit further down the line here about the skills that the students are picking up and the experiences and really opening up uh, the city and the, the world to them. But let's talk about how the students arrive in your class. Certainly recognizing that these students are coming from all over the place and different backgrounds. But can you talk about a first class and can you talk about uh, the attitudes uh, that the students arrive with or, or maybe even what opinions about food and eating and cooking they already have? Yeah, absolutely. So we actively recruit at Park Rose and Madison High Schools. And those uh, places, we have targeted them because those are food deserts. So there isn't access easy access to local organic foods within a mile of those locations. And the schools have a very high free and reduced lunch programs there. So at both of those schools, um, that's a, a poverty indicator. So we know that when we walk in to recruit that these are people that need us. Um, kids can come from anywhere as long as they can get to class on time. So our classes are really intensive, so it's important that students can arrive on time and stay for the full program. And on the first day of class, we start with a maximum of 20 students, and we do a focus group and a major research tool. So they're sitting down to fill out this 11-page assessment. So we really do find out what their thoughts are on food and nutrition, and then we do it at the very end, so we get to see their the arc of their learning. And let, let's talk about that a little bit. What 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 sort of uh, themes emerge from these surveys? What are you finding that uh, teens in uh, some of these neighborhoods think about food? Right. Well, they um, unfortunately we hear so much. I've never had these, but there's some kind of like fiery hot Cheetos or something. And like all of the students talk about being like addicted to these and they eat them all the time with sodas. So that's what lunch looks like often. So it's like really moving, uh, moving the ball to, OK, we're going to cut all of that out and we're going to grow our own carrots and then we're going to make soup with it. <laughs> so um, so it becomes a really interesting piece to see. Um, fiery soup, I hope. Fiery soup, spicy soup. <laughs> So it's pretty interesting to see, um, you know, just giving opportunities to kids to, to look at the ways in which, 
you know, how are how are you eating and how could you eat and are you cooking and what you could be doing with food. Um, so some students just haven't realized that they have that option, that that's available to them. Um, so, yeah, we get to see this like huge change. Um, we also many students really don't have any understanding of nutrition, you know, what a carb is what a protein is so we have a lot of opportunity to teach them about that we also do this piece in, in the research about their connection to their community and most of the students are very disconnected they're the only adults in their lives are um, authoritarian figures right so it's parent teacher and that's it they don't have any other relation to adults so it's a kind of scary to think about getting to know people outside of their own age range. So that's something that we really work on. Um, we want them to be able to get a job if they want a job, to help out. Um, a lot of students talk about the financial burden that they realize their parents are under, and they want to be able to help, but they don't know how to do that. So even being able to cook a nice meal at home at a cheap price is a big help. So even if they're not old enough to work, there are ways that they can help the family. So you guys are tackling a lot. This is not just simply how do you make a souffle. It is definitely more than that. <laughs> That's really interesting, that that idea of what access the kids have in the kitchen and, and also just what they know about good, healthy food. We live in Portland, which is considered such a foodie town. And, you know, and you, you look at a, uh, an issue of Portland Monthly or you look at the reviews or you walk down... Division Street or Alberta Street, and you see all these amazing, specific, wonderful restaurants. That's not the city that everybody's living in. That's right. I find it very um, frustrating, <laughs> but exciting to kind of be that bridge, right? Because we do have, you know, oh, Portland's one of the best food cities in the country. And we're all looking at, you know, the best of the best brunch, right? The best fries, the best of each of these categories. But I think we often forget to think about, okay, you get this amazing plate of food. Who's making that food? And how did they learn to do that? And what's our expectation of that person that's, that's cooking our meals, right? So these top chefs just don't come out of thin air, right? They have to be created and nurtured. And how does that happen? So this is a piece that we often forget about. And so we have some amazing teens who could be the next great chefs. We have some really incredible, uh, incredibly talented students um, who are going to be rising stars, but they need to be nurtured. And, and, and before we take a song break here, I want to talk about what, what are the skills, like when you say you see some rising star chefs and cooks coming out of your program at the Portland Kitchen, what are the skills that you identify? What are, what are the ingredients, as it were, yes. for a top <laughs> chef? Well, I think that's an excellent question. We have an amazing culinary director, Ariel Clark, and she really works with students and identifies those that want to be a great chef and those that want to be a good home cook. You know, not everybody has the same desire. Um, and we want to be able to give skills at all, you know, go to where they're at. So if they want to be a great cook at home, fine. But if they want to be on Chopped or something, well, let's get them there, right? So... Um, Identifying, I, I think, you know, you start to just see the difference in, in students. Some kids really have amazing palettes and they want to learn pairings. They have that almost intuitive interest and ability. So you start to see that they're looking at flavor profiles and it's like, okay, their pairings are very interesting and they're able to think about presentation. They're very interested in how things look on the plate and getting to that back end of, you know, why did you put that on the plate? 
next to one each other. Um, so there are those other pieces that you start to see, well, you know, this kid's only 15 and they're already thinking that way. You know, that's somebody that you want to really nurture and they are already making beautiful things. And, you know, some things fail, right? Not everything works. And Ariel's great about from, from the first hour of class, she's talking with them about, you know, things burn, the cookies burn, right? What do you do? How do you deal with that? And that's part of of life, right? You know, how do you make it okay? You don't freak out. You stay calm and figure it out. Um, so kids are learning those skills all through the lessons because, you know, things do burn. Not everything works out. The souffle does fall, you know, and how do you turn it around and, and make it beautiful and eat it anyway, right? So, um, but we have some amazing talent in the kitchen. So we're talking about doing some special pop-ups with those students to really nurture them. This is the Nonprofit Hour. I'm Phil Bussey. I'm joined today by Joy Church, who's executive director for the Portland Kitchen. Portland Kitchen. What, what, can you give me the tagline? What's what's your what's your 25 word or less pitch when you tell people uh, what you do? We use food and cooking to change the lives of underserved youth. Bam. Simple as that. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I want to I want to talk. I want to go back about. So it's been around for almost four years. Yes. Why? Why did you start it? Did you what what need did you see? Uh, did you wake up one day and suddenly it dawned on you this should happen? Uh, how how did the idea come about? Well, I think it's a great idea, but I did not come up with it. Uh, our founder, Abby Herrera, this came up for her as part of her her master's thesis. And she realized that there was a need to help at-risk teens in Portland and felt that health and nutrition, you know, is a huge issue. Obesity is a big issue. And so these things came together, coalesced, and she created this uh, thesis. And then it became a living thing. So suddenly she found herself with, oh, I have a nonprofit on my hands. Oh, I need a board of directors. And the thing kind of started to come alive on its own. So people started looking for a space to actually host classes started to recruit students and here we are several years later and where do you host your classes so we host our classes we rent a kitchen in a church uh it's near park rose high school so it's just a 10 minute bus ride for madison high school kids and a five minute walk for park rose students we provide bus passes uh for those that otherwise wouldn't be able to get to class on time um so we are in this kitchen and it is huge and base but basic <laughs> uh, things are always breaking so it's another in some ways I think a really great way for students to identify you know hey maybe your oven's broken at home so is ours it's okay let's surfy something instead you know how do you work with the things that you have instead of a beautiful kitchen which we would love but you know you work with what you've got and, and you work with uh, local chefs as well yes that's right we have so many great volunteers who um Sometimes, you know, knock on our door and say, hey, I want to come in and help you out. So it's a great way, again, for students to connect with adults in a different way. So they um, get to spend time with people outside of school and their parents <laughs> and get to learn from some amazing chefs um, and, and a variety of volunteers. We're always looking for people to help us. Here's my little volunteer pitch. And many people think that they have to cook, be a great chef on their own to work with the students. Students want to be around people and find meaningful relationships. So even if somebody just wants to come in and they know they're consistently going to come in every Tuesday for an hour, that becomes very meaningful to the students, right? So we don't need everyone to be great in the kitchen. They just need to care about students. They need to care about kids. 
Absolutely. And, and I want to talk a, bit, a little bit how you came to this organization. Um, it's, it's a bit of a pairing of what seems to be two of your interests, your interest in food and your, your abilities uh, in, in management. Um, let's start with your food interest. Yes. Uh, well, how, who taught you to cook? I, uh, well, that's a very good question. No one ever asks me that. Um, and I can cook. Um, I really taught myself food was not something that my family was very interested in. And um, I found for myself, so I grew up in the Midwest and I moved to the West Coast many years ago. And the breadth of product blew me away. It was one of the first things about the West Coast that thrilled me. You know, I'd never seen an avocado or an artichoke. I mean, things, the access was completely different. Um, so I just got very interested in how do you use these things. So for me, uh, I'm self-taught and, you know, I can't put on a huge dinner alone. I can feed 40 people by myself, but that's about it. That's a huge dinner. <laughs> but, but, you know, I try to keep that pretty quiet. We might want to cut that. Anyway, um, and, you know, and I'm a food enthusiast. So, you know, I've taken a red-eye flight to New York for lunch. You know, I've, got, I've traveled to China for a cooking class. You know, these things are seriously interesting to me. So that food piece is certainly something that um, I was asked to apply for the position of executive director for the Portland Kitchen, but somebody that was um, interested in and around the Portland Kitchen knew of my food interest. Yeah, and it seems like this idea of you, uh, you've done a number of food tours, the idea of food connected to a sense of place seems to be one of the themes that you have. And certainly that's one of the issues you are trying to correct with the Portland Ki- uh, with the Portland Kitchen and the students, that they don't really have where their place is doesn't necessarily have food available. Um, right. It it seems to be, like you said, you've taken trips to China, to New York, uh, for food, uh, being on the West Coast, recognizing what, what food is available here. That seems to be a gap that you're trying to bridge. That's true. It's interesting in the Park Rose neighborhood, um, you know, I mean, we'd love to have satellites everywhere, but at the moment we're at Park Rose and the access to food is very minimal. We just started last year a gardening program so we can teach kids how to grow their own and then how to cook it. So that's been an exciting tie-in because, um, you know, I mean, we have a great volunteer who tried to make the Park Rose Farmer's Market happen for many years and finally closed it last year because there just wasn't enough interest in it. So, you know, we have this food culture in Portland, but it's in a small pocket of the city and it doesn't extend to the outlying areas. So we are trying to... You know, we want to change the culture in these other parts of Portland through these students uh, over time to, you know, show them that, hey, here's what an artichoke looks like, right? I mean, for them, they haven't maybe seen it either, um, and they certainly don't know how to use it. So um, Ariel does a great job of introducing new products all of the time to them. And we take them on tours to, uh, let's say, New Seasons is a great supporter of ours, and you know, walk through each of the counter, the meat counter and the cheese counter and talk about how you can spend your money. And as an example, the students learn how to butcher their own chicken, right? So then you take them into the store and show them the packaging. Uh, go, let's just pause right there. <laughs> that, that's that, We can't just skate right by. So they, you guys bring in chickens and, you, and, and, and the students butcher them? That's right. Yeah, that's very in, an intensive piece of the program. But it's learning how to do these major skills right so they have to get some knife skills down 
and then they each have butcher their own chicken and then we go to the store and you look at the product right you can either buy this whole chicken for this dollar amount or one that's been cut up for this dollar amount which one do you do you've got a skill you've just saved money and then you walk over to the cheese counter well how are you going to spend that savings right so we teach people how to practically use the skills that we're giving them this is the nonprofit hour we are talking with joy church who is the executive director for the Portland Kitchen, which is an amazing organization that that teaches uh, teenagers and and now with your new program, uh, eighteen to twenty four year olds, uh, kitchen skills, uh, eating habits, uh, leadership skills. I want to talk about some of the nuts and bolts. Your your budget must be very interesting. I mean, you are not charging tuition, I imagine. I mean, so this is, you are relying on grants and donations. Is that correct? That's right. (laughs) We have been testing a sliding scale. Uh, So for those families who think that they can give us $5, we do ask them for it. And if they can say yes, we would love to take it. Um, We're testing that. Part of it is, you know, the $5 wouldn't keep us alive, but it's around the investment in a student. So we're invested in your child. We want you to be invested in your child, too. And so, you know, there are different points of view on whether asking for money does make a difference. And it's, you know, it just depends what you Google (laughs) to tell you if it works or it doesn't work. So we're testing it ourselves to see if we can get more parent investment if they are asked to pay something and if they do pay something. So we have a few students who are um, giving us a little bit, and but the majority are not. And no one's turned away based on income. That's not what we're looking for. We want to help underserved youth. Um, so, so yes, the short answer is I fundraise all the time. I ask people for money all the time and write grants and that's how we stay alive. Yeah. I I think that's one of the, that's one of the paradoxes obviously of working with, with at risk youth or disadvantaged, uh, families is that you do need to find funding for it. It creates, uh, it's, it's a difficult to create a sustainable funding model that way. But I would imagine in a city like Portland that does value and, and boast about its food resources so much that there would be a lot of people wanting to chip in. Well, I hope that's right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think we, I think we automatically think of when we look to restaurants, well, restaurants, their margins are so small. So they may be able to support in some way, like bringing in volunteers to teach a class. um, And they and they want to help and they do when we ask, of course. But in terms of writing the checks to keep us alive, they're not able to do that. You know, they're just trying to to make ends meet. So, um, again, I think we do have a disconnect in our community between, okay, we have all of all of us that want to go out and we'll spend a lot of money on a meal where we're not thinking about who's making that meal and how they've gotten those skills and that expertise. And that, so that's something that we just need to continue to harp on uh, and get people to realize that they should and could invest in the next great chef through a young person. And Portland Kitchen has just started its next initiative, which is working with uh, 18 to 24 year olds. Is that the next chapter or can you share what's 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 next for the Portland Kitchen? Yes. So we've launched a program called Culinary to Career. It's for 18 to 24 year olds. And this program, again, is for underserved youth who want an opportunity to change their lives through food and cooking. So um, 
We are, I'm very happy that I have a board who says yes to me often. And so when I approached them about this as my next vision for our future, they said, let's try it. And again, our culinary director, Ariel Clark said, great, let's come up with a curriculum and make this happen. So we are in our third week of of this new pilot. And this is um, with the goal of being able to get students jobs. So that's our measurable outcome for this program. Whereas for our 14 to 18 year olds, there are a lot of great outcomes. You know, if they learn anything about health and nutrition, if they build networks with their with friends, um, if they learn anything about food, there are lots of ways to measure success for them. But with this group for 18 to 24 year olds, this is a food service industry placement program. So we want them to get skills, get a job and keep that job for six months. And that is a success outcome for us. So we'll see how it goes. You know, we're again, we're only three weeks into this program. Um, We have eight students. So the pilot is very uh, doable. We can really, really coach and train these young people. And they are really awesome. Joy, thank you so much for joining us, and and it's been really interesting to learn more about what the Portland Kitchen is doing, and I look forward to uh, perhaps seeing some of these uh, new chefs out there in the Portland culinary world. Yes, well, stay tuned, and thank you so much for having us. Absolutely, and and, and we're going to go out with one of a couple of your students, or one of your students recommended 80s rock. That's right. And I'm not <laughs> sure what they meant by that, but that I feel like this has given me carte blanche to choose anything from 80 rocks, and from 80s rock we've never had a chance to play Def Leppard before so thanks to your student let's go awesome (laughs) thank you This show is made possible with generous support from Chinookbook, whose mobile app rewards your sustainable lifestyle choices with sweet savings at hundreds of neighborhood businesses near you. Use it for tonight's dinner or your next adventure. Download the app free at Chinookbook.com. It's uh, the Nonprofit Hour on X-Ray FM. I am joined uh, with Executive Director Heather Jeffers. That's correct. And board member Timothy Travis from Kinship House. How are you both? Oh, great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Boy, before we went on the air, you guys were doing the Punch and Judy show. (laughs) (laughs) We weren't hitting each other. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, Timothy and I have known each other for a long time, and we both have a terrible sense of humor, so. (laughs) Well, let's see if we can translate that to radio. The the Kinship House now works with foster children in in the uh, Tri-County, in the Portland metro area. I want to start with, before we talk about the mission and and, uh, programs, let's just start with some statistics and the overview of foster children in the area uh, can can you give me some numbers and uh, idea and scope of this this issue sure um, in the state of Oregon in the last few years 
and annually about nine to 12,000 children statewide are in foster care during one year. Um, in the metro area, it's between about two and 3,000 children um, who are in foster care during any one year. So uh, about the population of, uh, of one of the larger high schools. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot of kids. It's a lot of kids. Um, and many of those kids um, are in for a short period of time. Um, the ones that we see in Kinship House are children who tend to be in the system longer because we're focused on helping them get back to a permanent home and out of the system. So children who are in the system a little shorter tend to be kids who go back more quickly to their birth family. And wow, I mean, what is there an average turnaround time? I mean, I, I obviously for each kid there is uh, a, a particular story the vast majority of children who come into foster care are home within 30 days okay and they don't come back um, but the ones who stay uh, have a tendency to stay a long time because they're dealing with issues that are not as simply cleared up as the ones who go home immediately um, it, it is not uncommon to say three to five years for a kid in care. And and many, frankly, from the day they come into care, they don't leave until they're 18 or until they run away when they're 16, 17, because they don't want to be there anymore. <clears throat> so um, the it's it's misleading to talk about an average stay because you're you're averaging in kids who spend a few hours in foster care with people with kids who spend 10 to 15 years in foster care and kinship house is working with the kids who are more on the long-term basis right so kinship house what we do is we work with children who perhaps maybe their parents um, have a very very severe addiction and we know for addiction for people to get clean and sober it can take up to three to eight treatment interventions. So that takes time, right? It takes time for them to get in recovery. So kids are waiting for their parents to get in recovery. So they could be in foster care for a year and a half, three years, four years, depending if mom and dad, um, how long it takes them to get sober, or if unfortunately they're not able to achieve sobriety for the court to make a decision that um, outside adoption or family adoption is the better um, course of action for them. So yeah, so we help with kids getting stable while they're waiting for their parents. Um, and to see what's going to happen. And then we also then, when that decision has been made that kids can go home or they're going to be adopted by an outside family, we then do what we call permanency preparation, which means we help prepare the child and help prepare those parents for successful adoption. Again, because we're outpatient mental health, many of the kids we see have pretty significant mental health concerns like post-traumatic stress disorder, or again, because of addiction, maybe mom used methamphetamine or alcohol while she was pregnant, so they may have a learning disability or processing disorder, so really helping those future parents prepare um, and have the skills they need, like any parent of a special needs child. You need special skills and training um, to help support your kid in the best way possible. And that's very, very important because one of the things we find with those kids is they will um, sadly end up back in foster care if parents aren't prepared because it's just a daunting task. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's, partly, uh, it's partly preparing the kid, and but it's also, it's parents. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so... I, are there parenting classes? Let's. I want to take a step back. Can you paint the picture of Kinship House? I mean, how many how many kids are there? And this is actually they're they're there. They're staying overnight. Mm -hmm. They're they're 
that's the that's that's their home. Actually, what's it's funny you bring that up because I think our name causes a lot of confusion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I know. Nobody lives there. Nobody <laughs> okay. lives there. Nobody lives there. And really, the um, kinship house was created that name in particular because we are working with families, so kinship. And also, there's um, a thing called kinship adoption, which means that's the auntie or uncle or grandma's adopting. Um, and then house. I think everything in the '90s was named house, right? There were so many nonprofits with the name house in the 90s but actually no one lives there um uh, kinship house is outpatient mental health and so what we do is we actually focus on preparing um families for permanency and then helping treat those really significant mental health concerns that kids have that hold them back from accessing resources such as school or feeling good about themselves and helping them get stable and you know progress and have a healthy future so what happens is actually children and families come make an appointment just like going to the doctor for an hour a week and i loved what you said about preparing the family and the parents because you're right um we only have one hour we have one hour a week to sit there with those families and help them come up with strategies and help them prepare for the future and help them create a language of understanding between themselves and their child um and then they have to go home and practice because they're on 24-7. They're the parents, right? So the parents are the heroes in this story for sure. And um, we are really there to help support them, whether it's reunifying parents or adopting parents. Um, Kinship House has no stake in who the parent is. We want the child to be not a ward of the state and to be back in a permanent family. So actually, thank you for asking that question because it comes up a lot with our name. Um, but yeah, it's outpatient mental health. A great many people who yeah. are attracted to the idea of adopting a foster parent, or foster child, have the the misinformation that that they they believe that well my love will make a difference in the life of this child I I can do this, and <clears throat> the children who we deal with and, and that we work with are not attractive kids. Their functioning has been compromised to the point that you cannot expect many of them to function in the same way that an eight-year-old would function because with trauma they are they can be withdrawn they can be aggressive when they get into situations that reminds them of the situation in which they were traumatized they go right back to that traumatic moment and they cannot function uh, adequately so when you say that the, the parents are the hero and that we're preparing the parents. That's absolutely the truth because you did not adopt a day at the beach. Okay, you just you just didn't. But it makes such a difference over time in these children's lives that many of these children turn out to be quite functional as adults because someone was dealing with them not just out of their love of their heart, but dealing with them with the training of, of, of therapists and who understand what's going on when a kid is is flipped out in your living room and you know how to deal with it and that's that's no that's the kinship house thing in my mind yeah and i think that's the amazing and beautiful thing about um, working with kids who have mental health challenges based from trauma is that there is recovery and there is hope and to see um, to be able to be privileged to be part of that and to see the success um, of children who so many people um might be concerned that their future is very limited um, to see that that's not the truth, um, that there's so many opportunities for kids to do great. We have, um, you know, people might know statistically, we have um, so many kids in our foster care system that represent communities of color. 
Um, it's in the lingo they call it dispro disproportional representation, meaning um, you know in the community, let's say we have about is it nine to ten percent African American folks. I think in Portland actually it has reduced down to seven percent from the past, um, but our foster care population is about fourteen to sixteen percent African American. Um, and actually, Native American has the highest disproportional representation um, in the community because I think statewide it's around 3% Native American and 2 or 3%. And uh, in foster care, it can be anywhere. I think, well, at Kinship House, we see about 6 to 7% Native American at the top. And, um, and so when we talk about those statistics, um, and sadly our criminal justice system, because Timothy and I actually worked together originally in the, in, for the courts, um, you know, there is high um, representation of communities of color in our criminal justice system. And people say, said to me, actually, when I came to Kinship House, why are you going to Kinship House? You know, you've been working with adults in the treatment court system. And I said, at any given day, um, in one of my treatment court programs, about 50 to 60% of those adults had been touched by the child welfare system. People grow up, people have experiences, and if we keep people institutionalized, that's where they stay. And um, so I feel that, you know, not only is the work Kinship House doing for kids today and helping them engage in school and helping them get out of the system and helping them um, have a permanent family with a parent they can count on for the rest of their life, um, it's changing their opportunity for the future. Yeah. Absolutely, and yeah. I, let's talk about that a little bit more because yeah. Kinship House is part of a larger ecosystem. Yeah. And you, you just started to touch on that and, and <clears throat> it certainly mm -hmm. plays on with, with in the courts. Uh, there, there are courts, family courts step in. Uh, they need to place children somewhere often. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's one part of the equation. Another part of it is, as you're saying later down the road, you know, it's 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 a better investment, mm -hmm. certainly, to invest in a in a kid's uh, childhood. Yeah. Than than it is to to try to correct those problems or to ultimately institutionalize or imprison problems down the road. Yeah. Um, I, oh, to I, live in a rational world. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can talk about uh, expense avoidance in the future until you're blue in the face. But the 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 people in the legislature are talking about this year's budget, and so uh, there is not this this idea that we're going to invest in the future. I mean, people talk that way, but in terms of how they actually invest in children, um, they just they're just not they're just not walking their talk. And Oregon has terrible outcomes for foster children. Uh, a, a very high person. We're very low on the list of states, aren't we? Yeah, like yeah. 48th or something. Is that yeah. right? There's some studies, um, sadly, over the last 10, 20 years, um, Oregon has continuously ranked very poorly for foster care outcomes. Um, and I think in some studies, we're as low as 49th. We're usually in the bottom 10 of states in the United States. Thank oh. God for Mississippi. Yeah. But, but <laughs> it's, it's, well, that's, that's a very old yeah. joke. But, yeah. but, yeah. but, yeah. but yeah. Um, it is really a problem uh, because we do not actually value children in our society. Um, and I could talk about that for a long time, but I won't. Uh, it, it's very important that we have the kinds of therapies available for these children that take this tack and take this time and attention. There's a lot of stuff that, that 
there are a lot of people around who think that you fix kids. Kid's broken, you fix kids. Drop the kid off at three, pick him up at four or five sessions, and he's fixed. And, and really what needs to be worked on is the relationship between the child and the parent. This is not about the kid getting repaired. This is about this is about splicing two lives or three lives or four lives together so that you have an engagement, you have identify, identity that's there, you are you have a, a stable place where you are, you have stable people who you're dealing with and you have a stable routine in your life. Those three things orient us psychologically. And if you change those things often, then a child has to become resilient and adapt. And when you go into foster care, you lose all three of those orientations. You're in a different place, you're with different people, and you're doing different things, and you're four years old. And But, but, and, but th that's common throughout the United States, through various states. So why is Oregon, Oregon uh, performing so poorly? Well, let me talk about that a little, because because I <clears throat> I was an attorney. I, I represented abused and neglected kids here in Multnomah County, and then I worked for the state judicial department, and then I became a consultant for the American Bar Association, the section on children and the laws. And I have traveled and, and worked in 36 states with foster uh, parents and, and lawyers and judges and, and social workers. <clears throat> there was a big deal in, our pa in the newspaper here, the Oregonian, that we failed the Child and Family Service Review. I don't think any states ever passed the child and family service review. We are doing, we are, we are, we're in the bottom tranche of something that is sunk so low uh, that we're not necessarily that much worse than people, but the statistics say we are. It's terrible everywhere in the United States. Uh, we have more kids in care, though, in Oregon. We do. Than some other yeah. places do. We do have more kids in care, and I think... Part of the thing that we have to remember is talking, rolling back to that addiction comment, is we continuously in Oregon have one of the highest rates of addiction in the nation. Um, so when you have families who are homeless because they can't maintain a job because of their addiction, when you have families who um, the parents not available because they're using, so there's no food in the home, the bills aren't being paid, children become removed. Um, and enter the system. So I think, um, you know, there's not huge data in our state, and that's problematic about the correlation between addiction and the amount of children in foster care. But in my experience as a professional, I would not be surprised. Um, you know, over 40 to 60 percent of children are in care related to their parents' addiction in our state. This is um, a problem. If we don't have access um, to addiction treatment for adults. They can't get clean and sober. They can't get their kids back. Um, you know, so I think that there is a, a component to that piece that we don't always talk about. Yeah, so it's, it's I mean, it's a lot of problems that fall on the, sh the shoulders yeah. of four, five, six-year-olds. Yep. Yeah. This is a nonprofit hour. I'm talking with the executive director, Heather Jefferis, who, uh, from Kinship House, and board member, Timothy Travis. I want to roll back a little bit. Uh, so 1996, Kinship House was founded. Why? Why? How did that come about? So um, back in 1996, we had a big health care change. It was called the HMOs. I don't know if people remember that, but it caused, <laughs> it caused um, some change in how um, mental health services were paid for and how they were delivered and the focus of what type of mental health care um, was really a priority. 
Um, and so that change really included um, working focused on adults and doing shorter term services, being more effective with the limited dollars that were available. If this sounds like a reflection of today, yes, it is. Um, but that did happen back in the 90s. And it was a big shift for the mental health community. Um, so we had some mental health um, workers, therapists, and we had some folks who worked from DHS. Um, and we also had some folks who were involved with CASA, the court-appointed special advocates that are volunteers that um, kind of walk alongside a child um, as they go through the court process as a caring adult who kind of serves as an advocate and support, who we also work with, great organization. Um, and those folks came together and said, wow, this model is really not serving those relational needs that Timothy talked about. In mental health world, we call that attachment. That's our fancy word for it is attachment concerns. Um, and they were very concerned that children in foster care um, were not going to be served in an effective model that would support their needs and support the success of families. Um, to help children transition. So that's how we were founded back in 1996. Sadly, we're not really in a different place today. And so our mission continues um, really in many ways more urgently even than during that period of time. What what has changed though with the, the services that uh, Kinship House is providing or, or has everything remained the same? Really, you know, the core of working with um, uh, honoring the diverse trajectory of children who come into the system, as I mentioned, um, we have to be very um, conscientious and open because the children that come to our door have traveled a variety of unique and diverse paths, both in their ethnicity, their race, their um, cultural experience. Um, so we've always had part of our mission being very um, open and meeting people where they're at. That also is a very old school mental health approach. Good mental health therapy is not advice giving. It's helping people come up with their own solution and listening and providing structure so that they can um, take something home with them that will last um, and help them be successful. Um, and so really that is what we have continued to do and be focused on the family focused on healing trauma and focused on helping families become attached and build strong relationship for the rest of their lives. But but in the last 20 years, uh, while Kinship House and, and uh, the philosophies of uh, outpatient and therapy maybe haven't changed, Portland has changed dramatically. Mm -hmm. uh, it is certainly much more uh, affluent mm -hmm. than it was. I mean, there, there was no salt and straw 20 no. years ago. People <laughs> no. weren't spending no. uh, $20 for, for ice cream at night. No. Um, has that changed the landscape for what families are here and how many foster children there are? I mean, is how does how does the economic change of Portland play into uh, the foster care world? Let me let me just say that <clears throat> that it's it's misleading to say that our society is more prosperous and therefore more resources are available to foster children. That's not true. Um, I was doing liaison work in the legislature in the mid-90s and then, and then uh, quite a while after that. And every single time we went, we were told, you have to do more with less. You're going to get less than you've been getting. And you have to do more with less. That is, that is a nonsense phrase. You cannot do more with less. The, the people of the state of Oregon 
hear how much money is spent on foster care, and I couldn't give you a figure right offhand, but it's it's a lot of money, millions. And they say, well, that's a lot of money. You should be able to... That's a lot of money if you're talking about buying softball uniforms or going to Jamaica for a vacation. But when you talk about need, meeting the daily needs of children, many of whom are in, in serious need of therapy, it's not enough money. And that really is one of the problems that we have. We can go out and spend $10 on ice cream and not even think about the fact that we have one of the lowest per capita state income tax rates on the West Coast. And we have had generations of politicians who have persuaded us all that we're paying far too much in taxes. Cut, cut, cut. We've disinvested from the school system. We've disinvested in a lot of way, ways politically. So we can have our fees and go eat $20 worth of ice cream in an evening. So, sorry, you pushed a button. Makes for good radio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and to follow up with what Timothy had to say about that, um, I think that that is very, very true. Um, and one of the things, if you look at one of our partner um, agencies, which is Children First of Oregon, they have done a huge campaign on... Um, families in poverty. And Oregon has one of the highest family poverty rates in the nation. Again, one of those factors that's larger that contributes to the foster care system, just like addiction. Um, and if we have families who have educated parents um, and parents working hard, working two and three jobs, and their children are not in foster care, and those families are vulnerable and at risk in our community, it means our foster children are even at a whole nother level of being at risk and vulnerable. And one of the things we have seen um, at Kinship House is since we're, our, our facility is right over by, it's two old Victorian houses because we want to be cozy and comfortable. Um, our kids are in and out of institutions all the time. So when they come for that precious hour of therapy, we don't want them to be in the middle of a post-traumatic stress disorder episode because they're thinking about all the scary things that happened to them in court or at the DHS office. So we're in a house on purpose. Um, to make it more approachable and comfortable for the families. Um, we bought those houses back in 96. Um, our neighborhood has changed drastically. So and which, which neighborhood? We're just right by Lloyd Center on okay. um, in the edge of Irvington. Um, so we're on uh, Hancock and uh, 8th so Avenue. Um, so what we're finding is we're having to work with our partner agencies because, of course, we can't afford to build new agencies all over the place. That's not... Uh, something that's possible at this time. But we work with partner agencies um, to find space and be available because many, many of our families are having to move out of the city um, and find somewhere else to reside that's affordable for them. Foster parents, because foster parents have to have three, four, or five bedrooms. They need a large home because kids have to have their own space. Um, adoptive families need to have also homes that are large enough um, for their families and affordable. So we are seeing a huge drift of families moving to the outer metro area, which then um, there aren't as many services in the outer metro area for, of any kind, really, for families that need support. So we're really working hard um, in trying to um, have we call geographic access for families because um, the traffic's terrible. Who wants to drive with a child who has trauma and gets irritable for two hours um, for or an hour and a half um, for a therapy appointment? And sadly, because resources are so limited, like Timothy was talking about, we have families who drive for biweekly therapy from Hood River, from the coast, from St. Helens, 
from close to Salem, um, which is extremely unfortunate in my opinion, that um, they have to drive that far to get the specialty services they need to succeed. So we, we've, we've been talking a lot about the, the problems and the, the, the challenges for foster care. Can we have a success story? We can. I know. It's so sad. So let me tell you, know, I was thinking about that because I was thinking about um, we have these two. It's actually on our website. Um, two young boys who came to us um, because they were disrupting out of an adoption. So a family had wanted to adopt them and the boys had very serious trauma history and um, that family did not get any services. And so we got a call, oh gosh, help us, help us, help us. Um, it was a little late and it wasn't a good fit for the parents or, or the two boys. Um, they were about seven and nine-ish when they came to us. Um, and so we helped that transition because it's a trauma. It's a trauma to have an, a failed adoption. Um, you know, everybody feels bad because everybody's coming into it with the best intention and wants it to be successful. And so people really need help at that point to help alleviate the grief and the loss that happens with that. So we did that process with the family. Then we worked with the CASAs, I mentioned, the attorney like Timothy used to do, and with the DHS caseworker and the boys and help them process their loss and get them stable in a new foster home and make sure the foster parents had the resources they needed. We did all that work. And then we helped the boys prepare for adoption because they still needed to be adopted, right? We do not want these two young men, African-American men, to be stuck in foster care because we know the trajectory for that looks like prison in Oregon. And, you know, that is not um, something that is deserved because your parents made poor choices. So then we helped the adoption team committee um, come up with some candidates. And people say, how do you help that? And I say, how we help that as mental health workers, we really work with the kids and identify, oh, this child really has some significant trauma. So parents are going to have to know how to work with that trauma. This child has some learning disability because mom probably, mom didn't report, but mom probably used some substances while she was pregnant. So the parents are going to need some help with learning how to do I EPs and how to help him be more successful in school and parents are going to need to know about that that when they adopt these children to be successful these are the things that are going to help them and in doing that there was a family that was identified and they are wonderful wonderful people and have worked really hard um, and by the time the adoption the kids got moved into this prospective adoptive home so you'll see this takes a while about a year and a half and then another about a year and a half for the adoption to finalize. So the child is actually living in the home with their adoptive parent um, in, for a while before the adoption is legal and the state is no longer involved. And so these two boys who had a very chaotic past, and you know, if we look at statistics, you know, it was a little nerve-wracking what their future might look like. Um, the oldest is now 13, and the younger one is about a year and a half younger. And uh, they actually are doing so well and have such supportive parents, they got invited to go to Washington, D.C. and talk about being adopted mm. as part of an adoption awareness um, campaign. So this young 13-year-old man got to stand up in front of a huge group of people in Washington, D.C., talk about his experience, um, have the support of his adoptive family, his parents, um, and he got to go on a tour of, you know, the underground tunnels and meet all of our state representatives. And we got all kinds of pictures on the website. 
And this was a boy that if he had not had a permanent family, his story would be very different. And we serve about 500 kids a year. Um, so and we that, have 500 just, of those stories. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's yeah. amazing because yeah. that does just, that yeah. flips the storyline for them as well. Instead yeah. of being told that you're a problem or that you have problems, suddenly you're told that you've overcome something, that you're successful. And, and that, I mean, that sort of reinforcement obviously uh, changes the direction that these that these kids are going to go. Now, now May is Foster Care Awareness Month. What does that mean for Kinship House? What that means for Kinship House is, um, I think, as a mental health professional, maybe it's the maybe it's our training. Um, we're very concerned about privacy, and I think that taking the opportunity to use a, a month that has been identified to really challenge ourselves as mental health people to get out there and bring awareness to the community. As you and I were talking about earlier, I'm a native Oregonian. My family's been here for a long time, and it's heart-wrenching to me that our state is in this circumstance for families, um, and particularly foster families. And I say, you know, as a mental health professional who spent 20 years of my profession in my state, um, what's my part? And my part is I need to get out here like we are today and talk about the problem because um, I know that my fellow citizens, um, if they knew that we were having such a struggle with foster children um, in our community and that children needed help and families needed help to succeed and there is effective solutions that really do work, we just don't have them to the level that makes an impact, that um, things could change. So I'm not gonna be a, a little silent mental health professional anymore. I need to get out there and really share the story um, So and give people the opportunity to know that they can make a difference in supporting organizations like Kinship House that are working hard um, and efficiently and doing so much with so little to change the lives of so many kids. Like I said, we see 500 kids a year. So that's what, you know, I, I, sometimes we think about these awareness months and we think, oh, geez, here's another awareness month, whatever, no, no, no. But it really um, is an opportunity um, for people to um, know because we can't change a problem if we don't know. I like to think about, you know, being Oregonian. There was a time when I was a kid in the 70s where we had a lot of problems with pesticides and herbicides and we um, almost lost huge populations of our uh, wild bird population, so eagles, hawks, all of that kind of thing, was a rare treat. You hardly ever saw an eagle or a hawk because um, their eggs became fragile with those chemicals and they were dying off. And people became aware of the problem. And today we see those birds everywhere, right? In a very short period of time, from 1970-something 70, to now, we have totally changed a problem. And I think foster care in our state is the same way. We know what works. Um, we can support what works and we can make a change. Um, it may seem like daunting because like we talked about, it's it's sad, you know, it's sad, but um, we really do have effective solutions to make it work. We just need more hands, right? More hands. Heather Jeffress is the executive, executive director for Kinship House and Timothy Travis is a board member. Thank you both for coming in this morning and we're gonna go out with a song you selected, Timothy, uh, Teach Your Children Well. That's all for this week's Nonprofit Hour. We would like to thank our guests, Joy Church from Portland Kitchen, as well as Heather Jeffress and Timothy Travis from Kinship House. This show was made possible with the support of BusinessWorks, specializing in small business accounting needs of all kinds, from payroll to day-to-day -day bookkeeping and beyond. 
If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our radio show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Our host is Phil Bussey, and our producer and editor is Henry Leisha. You can follow us on Facebook or via our Twitter handle, at Nonprofit Hour. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to nph at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in to the Nonprofit Hour on KXRY Radio, xray.fm. Join us on Monday mornings at 6 a.m. and Tuesday afternoons at 1. Have a great week. Thank you.